Welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing, and climate change. I'm Sophia, your content and podcast editor, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to this week's episode. This week, we have two very special guests, Olivia and Charlotte from Climate Salad, a company that works to boost climate tech companies in Australia through programs and community support. Get ready for episode six. Hi everyone, we're back with another pod um, and we've got Charlotte and Olivia here from Climate Salad. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. So great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I am really keen to be learning so much from you guys. Um, But before we head on to uh, our main questions, we want to sort of look at where your backgrounds are and just get to know where your journey started. So Charlotte, coming from a background in communication, I'm sure you have a really good understanding of how to create effective messaging and appeal to people. How has this background shaped your path in sustainability and ultimately solving arguably our planet's greatest issue? Great question. Thank you for that opening one. Uh, Look, my background in communication has been to the advantage because you always have to think about your audience and you know in the startup sector you need to think about your customers so it has come to an advantage but I've also seen the evolution of sustainability in my time in working in sustainability and communications we had to dress sustainability up as different things like this engenders trust in your brand this gives you social license Uh, sustainability wasn't hot and climate solutions definitely weren't popular until and I've seen that from businesses looking at investing in sustainability as a business cost to a business advantage and it gives them a competitive edge and we can and we've seen that over time right maybe not soon enough when we look at the state of the environment but it it is interesting to see how I've had to adapt though. So having to dress up sustainability when I worked for an international eco-label for sustainable seafood, we couldn't use that. It was almost like a dirty word. Um, you know, through to seeing all the major retailers, uh, Coles, Woolworths, Aldi adopt it. And it's like, oh, they actually like to use it now, you know, and even working with primary producers, um, fishermen, you know, salty, burly old fishermen who are like, don't tell me I'm sustainable or not, you know, you can't tell me what to do, to um, to using it as like this will ensure my children's children's children can continue to fish. So it is interesting to see the evolution of people being more susceptible and people actually liking it. Um, but now I'm seeing sustainability isn't enough. We need to be regenerative. We need to be solutions focused, you know, I don't want a sustainable marriage. I want a fantastic one that regenerates and creates more value for future generations. Exactly, exactly. And I think this is such a big conversation, especially around, you know, the concept of sustainability. It's changed over time. And like you said, now that it's changed over time and we're looking at solutions-focused um concepts of tackling issues instead of hey let's just put a sustainability logo on everything and greenwash things we want to go deeper into the problem and provide solutions that actually work 
And I don't think, I mean, it's interesting, you know, greenwashing coming about and that's what, I'm not a real techie person, but I absolutely love tech as it's the great enabler because with more technology, we see increased transparency, but that also forces us to have more accountability. So I don't think there is a company out there that can get away with greenwashing anymore because we can all dive into what their impact is, negative and positive. Uh, You just can't get away with it anymore. And that's what's so great about technology. And it can also scale those solutions. So that's why I really love the climate tech space. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to just go towards uh, Olivia for a second there and um, talk about your journey. Olivia, you're a recent grad um, and it must be so cool to be working in such a cutting edge space you have a background in music, which is really cool. How did you end up in this climate tech space? And are there parallels in the skill sets you have developed in your degree and your current role? Yeah, um, it is a, firstly, it's an incredibly exciting space to, to work in. I feel very lucky that I'm here. Um, I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly on the, the really exciting, um, energizing aspect of climate tech. I think you can get caught up in the the sadness of it all, quite frankly, of the climate crisis and um, feel quite helpless. And that's kind of what drove me into working in this space. You're right, I am a music grad. I graduated from the Sydney Con in the midst of COVID um, with an honours degree. So I have a background in um, research and um, writing and analysis and stuff. Um, I really loved music um, as a kid and my dual passion with that I actually wanted to be a marine biologist so coming back into climate tech it's not quite a full circle but it almost is um so I I definitely see there are a lot of parallel um skill sets um just the dedication that you need to have to the cause especially working in the startup space um playing music requires dedication perseverance, passion, and I see all of that in the founders that we we support through Climate Salad. Um, I'm also the program manager of our 2022 industry report, and so a lot of the data analysis and writing and report development I really drew on from my music degree. At first I was really concerned graduating with a music degree that I didn't have those transferable skills, but I think you know, no matter what degree you have, no matter what it says on your piece of paper, um, as long as you've got the the commitment and the the passion for it, you can really transfer into the climate tech space because there's such a growing and energizing movement here. Um, so really, just dive headfirst in. Yeah, that's so cool to see that your your skills in the in your music career sort of translated in your position you're working in right now. So I think. It's just it's so interesting to to see those parallels and this you've you've got a background in actuarial studies and you you've gone into sustainability like you know we we can relate to these things and I think it's just do you think you've 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 got some parallels there from from actuarial to to sustainability yeah, it's like super interesting because throughout my degree, I was trying to explain to people actually what I did. And now it's even more confusing because it's like, you did this, how'd you end up here? But, you know, like, yeah, always happy to explain to people. And I'm sure you get that a lot as well, Olivia, like when people ask you, like you studied music and you're in climate tech. Um, but no, I find it super interesting because it's like using that same skill set and 
Um, I think the great thing about this space, as we've seen, is that it's climate change is an issue. So we get people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And to me, like what I would say to a young person is choose the problem you want to solve rather than the career you want to get into or rather than the degree you want to study. And I think like we all are testament to that. Like even yourself, Sri, are coming from a law background, things like that. Um, and I think this leads very nicely to my next point is that we all know that the climate change space is quite hard to understand regardless of what background you come from. You hear things every day about, you know, like a tsunami or like a bushfire affecting the most vulnerable of communities. And sometimes you can feel extremely like helpless. And I'm just wondering in your perspectives, um, Charlotte and Olivia, what was your first sort of interaction with climate change? How did you respond? How did you feel? And what sort of actions were you then able to take? Um, I, I just wanted to add to your last point. The climate solutions area is going to need all the skills. So there isn't one particular skill set that, you know, climate tech or sustainability needs. We need all all of the skills. Um, so I think I consider myself a bit of a sustainability snob. I really like to focus on ocean health. Um, I'm on the board of a mental health charity that uses surfing for therapy. And, you know, I was like, okay, social impact. Um, I was involved with November a lot. Like I was sort of like, you know, social impact and the oceans. These are the most important things for me. Uh, and it was during the 2019, if you can cast your mind back to be pre-COVID days, the black summer bushfires and my son was three and he asked me to draw a koala and I drew a koala for him and I you know went about whatever I was doing and I came back and he colored it in and he he drew it on fire and just with bellows of smoke around it and I was like oh this is the world I'm bringing my children up in like I need to there is nothing more important than climate um, so I, you know, just spoke to everyone I knew and I was like, I, I need to, I need to work out how I can contribute more. What can I do? And I was working with companies on, um, smaller levels and consulting. And, um, when I saw this sort of emerging climate tech space, I, I, I have to work in this area. I have to, I haven't come up with a, an incredible solution myself, but what I am good at is connecting is helping and supporting those that do have the solutions scale those solutions. That's amazing. It's so interesting to see like the psychology of climate change, like what prompts people to act in a certain way. And I think that's something we have to keep looking into. Like how do we promote action? It's not just good to spit the facts, but like how do we get person X to approach climate change, which might be different to like person Y. You have to look at what they, like what appeals to them, what they value. And I think for Charlotte, like I guess, from from your son's point of view it definitely was very important to you oh the fact that he you know he's thought of like a koala is it's burnt on fire and I you know I grew up having koalas my, my grandparents uh lived in Raymond Terrace which is a suburb it's not like too super urban-y like suburban area and they had koalas in their backyard you know like we just come over for lunch and it's like oh there's a koala in your in one of the trees like that was just normal growing up and it's like the only koalas they will see if they're lucky, we'll be in zoos. Yeah, koalas are now listed as endangered in parts of Australia, which is tragic. We were actually on our way to um, this to to Threadbow, and we saw a lot of dead koalas, kangaroos, just around, just driving through the road. It's just so sad. 
Yeah, their biggest, um, like so koalas in New South Wales, the biggest threats to them are uh, like road um, and uh, dog interactions. But then that was before the Black Summer fires, which wiped out 74% of New South Wales population. So now it's climate change. Olivia, what about you? I'm 24. I'm quite young. And I think when people talk about the climate crisis, it's a lot of um, people talking about their kids. Like, Charlotte, that that um, story about your son is just, it's awful and it's tragic. Um, but I also grew up learning about climate change in, in even in primary school. Like, it's been with me my whole life. I have never known a world without those effects. Um we were talking to a um, an ag tech company yesterday who was who concentrates on viticulture, and they've said that in the past thirty years the grape harvest has moved one day later in the year. So in the past thirty years, the grape harvest is now a whole month later in the year because of climate change, which is you don't think about it when it's just one day a year, but to move a whole month that's that's significant. And so for me, growing up. Climate change was just a constant part of my education and, and my, my, my life. And I think it, that's one of the biggest drivers because it is, it is critical. It encompasses every single part of our lives. Like even now in Europe, over a thousand people have died in, those, uh, in the heat waves. Um, and it's just, we need to do something about it. We need to collectively step up um, and make those changes this generation you know charlotte your son our generation that they have this intense climate anxiety that's saying something that's like we we shouldn't be creating a world where our children are fearing things and not being able to enjoy their own childhood yeah just let kids be kids and let them have fun um and then on that topic charlotte I did see, uh, I think you posted a month ago on LinkedIn about how to talk to kids about climate change. Um, and because unfortunately, like how things are going is that these kids are going to are essentially going to bear the burden of things that they have, they have no fault for. Like it's because of us and all the generations. So how do you explain this concept to kids in a way that um, makes them want to make a change? I'm definitely no expert in talking to kids. Yelling, possibly. Do that. I do a lot of that with my kids. Um but, you know, I can only explain from my kids and I, it was after the IPP, IPCC's latest report and I just felt devastated and I was like, I, yeah, they're going to inherit this world. Um, and I guess some, some tips are to listen. You know, at, my kids are Gen uh, Alpha, I think it is. They will be the most educated. Like we're hearing, Olivia, like, you know, climate change wasn't discussed in primary school for me, tiny little bit in high school, um, I think because I did earth and environmental science, but uh, it just wasn't. And now you can study it at university. So the next generation will be the most educated and we have so much to learn from them. Like my son was born on World Environment Day in 2016 during one of those 100-year storms. They don't call them that anymore because there's been like eight since then. Um, you know, for his six years of life have been the hottest on record. So what I experienced as a child is definitely not what they will. So listen, you know, listen to them. I think it's super important to give them a sense of hope and agency. 
So, you know, everything we do, we do, like I talk about, like, you know, when we get the food scraps and we give it to the worms, it's like we do this for the planet. Like, you know, we read books, we curate the content around learning because he's only six, um, my daughter's only three, but we make sure that that's an important part of how they learn but also how they're entertained because it's more about entertainment. And, And I think, you know, everyone on the call, like we care deeply for the environment because our parents have probably fostered a love of nature for us. So I think about my childhood. I grew up you know, backing onto a rainforest. We spent a lot of time at the beach and in, in amongst nature. And it's really important we do that with our kids. And, you know, I'm lucky enough, I, I do back onto a, a rainforest that um, is preserved to because there's a rare and endangered Richmond birdwing butterfly and can only survive on one particular vine and have it in my backyard, thank gosh. Um, so... You know, and I like telling them stories that like about this amazing forest. You know, I took them to the Great Barrier Reef last week. We went to Cairns because it was really important for me that they get to see it. Because I think by the time they're my age, I, I don't know. Like I, I have hope, but I want them to fall in love with it so that they want to protect it. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really good you're exposing them to things at such a young age, and that sort of nurtures like that love for the environment as well. Um, and I think yeah, like yeah, like. I guess the idea of listening is just so important and hopefully like your son and their daughter, they will end up like speaking to their friends about it and it becomes like a conversation that happens quite a bit. Um, and I think like that'll only improve for, for their generation because I think they're starting young, like even for Shri, um, myself and also for Olivia, I guess like we weren't exposed to it at that young age. So it's really good. They can like start those early conversations and encourage behavior among their friends, things like that. Um, so now I want to sort of look at what you guys are doing um, on like, like I guess in the VC community space and want to talk more about Climate Salad. Um, I know you guys recently had your one year like sort of party anniversary and just to put things as to, I, I'm sure you know this, but just to look at how far you've come, it started off as a newsletter and now you've got a community of over 200 companies and 500 entrepreneurs. And I was looking at your 2030 mission and you guys want to help 1,000 climate tech companies and have at least 10 global successes. Um, and it's looking super exciting. And because at Kid Greenfluence, we also want to build a community. Definitely, you guys are someone we really look up to. So with your 2030 goal, what was the process behind setting this goal? And how do you guys plan to bring all these people together, like your mentors, your VCs and founders, into, I guess, into one big community? Well, I guess with our, our goals, um, we think it's really important to support as many climate solutions as possible. Climate tech, um, the way we see climate tech is a, a scalable tech-based solution that helps solve the climate crisis. That can be software or also hardware-based. And so we recognise that it's not just carbon reduction, it's not just carbon offsetting, it's not just carbon removal, it's also the mitigation, the adaptation and the resilience to our changing climate. Um, and so our broad goal of helping a thousand companies is hopefully to capture as many climate solutions as possible. Also recognizing that not all of these companies are going to succeed. They might be, they might merge, they might, um, you know, move into different areas, they might um, just totally not not be viable. Um, so then we want that we want that broad touch, but we also want to create really deep impact. And that's where we help 10 companies become global successes. So that can be a significant carbon reduction or removal or a significant mitigation or adaptation to the changing climate. 
And we want to achieve that by 2030 because really we don't have a lot of time to waste. We need to um, start supporting these companies like yesterday. Yeah, I feel like now is the right time. The time is now. And I think like you made a great point. I made a great point, Olivia, when you look at those 10 global successes and things like that, um, because obviously like climate tech is a a long-term kind of space to be in. You're not going to get the problem straight away. And a lot of a lot of the technology, a lot of the resources we're putting into it, they might not scale yet. They could be untested. And and to me, I think this goes back to the idea of the proof of concept in the sense that we have the concept, but how do we know for sure that it can reduce emissions? How do we know for sure that it can be rolled out to many people, many companies? Do you guys find this is a challenge in the industry? And if so, what support can be provided to founders? First and foremost, with the um, and I hope that was drilled home in the climate tech space this is very much a a, you know capitalism at work Um, if your climate solution isn't solving a customer problem first then you know there's groundswell giving that gives out grants to climate solutions Um, there's you know charities and the nfp space but in the climate tech space you need to first and foremost be solving a customer problem your solution needs to be commercially viable you need to unapologetically be chasing profit because the bigger you become as a business the larger your positive impact on the climate becomes so you know we we work we have over 70 VCs family offices angels representing 2.6 billion in climate tech funds ready to deploy on solutions but they will not they're not a charity they will only invest when they can see commercial viability when they can see a commercial success in that solution so it needs to be solving customer problems. So that that is a challenge because we we do have founders that have fantastic solutions, but it has to be solving customer problems. It has to have that commercial success, and and that's you know that's why we help you know with workshops and support networks and mentors and an incubator program because we want you to succeed commercially because that's how our planet succeeds. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I wanted to reflect on this concept of clean tech because it's it's almost become a umbrella term to to embrace like a wide range of products and services. Um, and like you said, there's so much out there. There's you know energy generation, energy storage, energy retailing, waste management, market innovation, and I could go on like up till you know alternative proteins, but. There's so much out there, but how do we make them commercially viable? How do we make them successful? How do we make them um, uh, sustainable in the market? So, yeah, it's it's a, such a big thing to look at, and I I'm really looking forward to following um, the climate ballot journey. I think it's I think it's a tricky balance. Um, the industry report that we just released um, surveyed 171 climate tech companies and about 40% of them were developing a new technology. 60% of them were furthering existing technology. So I think it's really important to have that balance because we do know that a lot of the technology to help mitigate the climate crisis is, you know, in play now. And we can support that right now. In terms of the deep tech development, that will need a little bit more support, but they still need to have product market fit. They still need to have good evidence of, you know, customer adaptation. And they still need to have, you know, that right balance of what's the impact on the environment and what 
problem does the customer have that this can solve and what's essentially the the cost of it? Yeah, definitely. Um, Those are key considerations and they're, they're considerations that need to be thought about even before you enter the market. These are things that, you know, companies should be doing research in and and you, they need to be joining communities like Climate Salad to to understand the impact they can make, the understand what what is out there already. You know, are, are they just imitating other services? Yeah, I mean, we there's a lot of solutions, like you said, um, Shree, that fall under the climate tech umbrella because we, I mean, decarbonisation touches every element of your of the economy through to how you have your shower, what coffee you drink, how you drink it, um, how you, you know, um, what mobility of transport you use to get to work or from work or how we Zoom or Zencast. Um, So there are, you know, the climate crisis, there are a lot of problems, but fortunately there are a lot of solutions. But the solutions that we see succeed are those that, um, you know, that are commercially successful, that do have the right product market fit. So, you know, in within the climate salad community, we have, you know, very early stage companies through to what we consider green unicorns. Um, and we also have an incredible range of mentors and advisors and angel investors who, you know, end up mentoring and then sometimes invest as well. So we like to pair them up and make sure that they, you know, if they're going to fail, they fail fast, but more so that they're going to succeed, that they're going to pivot, they're going to change their business model to make sure that we're setting them up for success. So, um, and not dissimilar to, I guess, a startup community in any other sector, but I guess the difference in our community is, it's full of passionate, driven individuals who we're all on the same side for our planet. We want you to succeed. We want these solutions to work because our planet depends on it. 100%. Amazing. And I was actually talking to um, a couple of members within Climate Salad and they were talking about how they were part of the mentor uh, program and they the the people they were mentored up with they offered them a job as well I mean it's not going to happen all the time but like it's just cool there's so many opportunities out there that a climate salad provides that you know definitely those uh tuning in check climate salad out um check their socials and look at all the amazing stuff they have to offer we also have a job board. I mean, in the recent survey, a uh, huge report that uh, Olivia led, you know, 4,000 jobs have been created in this sector that weren't there before, another 2,000 in the next 12 months, and that will only grow. Um, you know, we see it as, oh, and, you know, $1.4 billion of investment in the climate tech sector across Australia and New Zealand, half of that from overseas. So it's not just really great for the planet, it's also incredibly good for our economy. Um, another highlight from our community that we see as world leading is of the climate tech companies in the report, 40, uh, I'd, I'd like to say 40%, but it's 39.7% have a female founder. And in tech, that's incredibly positive. It's not completely equal, but we are getting there. And we know that climate change more adversely affects women and people of colour from minority groups. So they know the problem better than most which makes sense that they can create the solutions. So it's really important for us to have that inclusion and diversity within our founders as well. So we 
you know, when we're curating our our showcases, our events, our mentor list, um, we make sure that that's a key priority. Yeah, I think, Charlotte, you, you touched on some very, um, very interesting points and very important points. I think that whole idea of inclusion, inclusion and diversity in that VC space is like fundamental to ensure we're getting the best outcomes um, because like we can't have one person representing the views of the VC. And this is something that we actually spoke about in our recent podcast episode with Inam. Not sure if you're familiar with them, but they're creating an amazing impact investing app. And one of the key things that I think was really interesting for Shri and I and very shocking was only 0.03% of VC funding actually goes to women of color. And that's just like, it just startles me that they are creating amazing things, doing awesome stuff and what can what can be done in the ecosystem. And I think like that's where groups like you guys, Climate Salad, really come in and try and foster that diversity in mentorships and create opportunities and things like that. And I think the other key point was the creation of new jobs. We're hearing so much automation and redundancy, things like that. But in my opinion, climate, uh, sorry, climate tech is like an industry where we're creating more jobs at like a very fast rate. And I think, Sri, you mentioned that some people were offered jobs um, from the climate, from a few of the climate tech companies. And that's so awesome to see. And I think like you guys have highlighted this very well in, um, in that industry report. And Olivia, I know you've done a lot of hard work on it. So really keen to hear like in a nutshell, what your key findings were and what, what, I guess, what are most interesting are for people to look at and things like that. Yeah. Um, I think that the jobs is really exciting. That's just from the 171 companies that um, completed our survey. We know that there are a significant amount of climate tech companies that we didn't capture. So that 4,000 jobs created plus 2,000 jobs in the next 12 months, that's very conservative. And so that in itself is really exciting. The transition to a climate-friendly net zero um, society is going to really need a lot more jobs than that. Um, another thing that really excited me was the um, regional-based hubs that are appearing for climate tech. It's not just Sydney. It's not just Melbourne and metropolitan areas. There's a really um, strong opportunity for a just transition from coal and gas um, in the regions. So, for example, there's a strong hub of climate tech on the central coast and in the Hunter region of New South Wales um, and also inland in Dubbo and Orange. There's also a strong climate tech hub in Geelong, for example, as well as um, regions in Adelaide and also in Western Australia. So I think it's a really exciting space for that just transition, um, which is going to be critical for decarbonisation. And that's so, as a proud Novocastrian from Newcastle, um, I, I love to see that because Newcastle is also the world's largest coal exporting port. Like it exports more coal than any other port in the entire world. So it's really important that we have the solutions on hand and that, you know, the transition is happening already. We're seeing coal-fired plants closing years ahead of schedule. So I always think of that as, you know, coal and gas. It's the sunset industry. Climate tech is the future. This is sustainable. It's renewable forever. Um, you, you know, if <laughs> hopefully uh, this new federal government will have less in subsidies to uh, gas and coal. Last year, like the federal government, um, do you want to know how many, how much money it had in subsidies the fossil fuel industry within Australia just last year? Eleven billion. 
11 billion. Yeah, no, it's a billion. Even industry needs $11 billion in subsidies from the government to prop itself up. It is not commercially viable. Can you imagine a startup coming to you and saying, oh, you know, if only I had a million in subsidies, I'd work. You'd just say no. You wouldn't invest in it. So this is why, like, you know, climate tech, this is the future. We can no longer invest in these, you know, fossil, fossil fuel sunset industries. And it's all about that just transition. And it's so great to see that, you know, these are jobs, not just in the capital cities, but in these regional areas that have depended on these fossil fuel industries. Exactly. And on to your point of, you know, these fossil fuel industries are not commercially viable. They're just systems that we're used to. They're just systems that we don't know how we haven't known how to grow out of but now we we do we have some sort of path designed for us and we're slowly you know following that path and creating some more opportunities to grow out of that um cycle of bad habits i just want to also add something i think it's really good to see that there are all these regional hubs in areas outside the cities because essentially i think the people in those industries are the ones that are going to be affected more with the transition. Um, when you think about like, say like even in your perspective, Charlotte coming from Newcastle being a huge coal mining industry and seeing that transition and seeing that these workers can be supported from an economic sense. Um, we actually had a chat to us uh, we had a chat to Sunai Kisti from Beyond Zero Emissions and they've created like a plan about, it's called One Million Jobs. So how do we improve outcomes in regional areas um, and foster renewable energy um, and things like that? So um, yeah, I think that's so important. And I think it goes back to that idea of building a community. Um, and Shri, I know you have very like strong thoughts about this and would want to explore this further. Like what are your opinions about building a community and what Climate Salad has done, which is quite amazing? I think we reflected on this um, uh, when you were talking, Charlotte, um, how you were talking about diversity, inclusion, having more people of colour uh, in, in this conversation. But I remember in our initial chat together, we also talked about Indigenous repre representation. I think that's such a big thing. And in in Australia, having Indigenous voices in, in you know, shaping our climate, climate future and designing climate solutions appropriate for us, we need to have Indigenous voices. We need to include them. They know our land better than us. They've been on this land for for like a long time they know they know you know all the ins and outs so it's such a big issue that you know we're facing um and we can grow we can become bigger we can create solutions that are more effective if we include those voices absolutely i remember um the first time i felt proud to be australian um was when Kevin Rudd had just been elected and um, I grew up in Newcastle, Wobbicool land, and uh, our Wobbicool friends invited us to sleep in the tent embassy the night before the national apology and being there and walking up to the grass of Parliament Hill and, and hearing Kevin Rudd's apology. And the part that just always sticks out to me in this, you know, innovation space is like for over 70,000 years, our First Nations people managed the land and colonial settlement came in. And to think we couldn't learn, 
like, oh my God, the lessons lost, like what we could have learned from our First Nations people to better manage our land, to better manage the planet. It's, it just always astounds me. It's like, oh my gosh, to the, what? There's so much more we could still be learning. And we see that in fire management in Indigenous cultures across Australia. So yes, it is is something we want to have more participation in. We do have some Indigenous founders now, but that was really important that we even asked that question in our industry report. And, you know, there was a few, you know, like, oh, why, why are you asking that? It's like, well, you know, I don't see it reported anywhere else. Like the numbers are really low, but we're going to start. You know, we can't manage what we don't measure. So we're going to start measuring it and we're going to start working on ways to to increase participation from First Nation founders Um you know, we're across Australia and New Zealand and New Zealand has great programs to include um, Maori, iwi participation in the startup sector. But we need to work, we work, need to work on it. It's definitely something we aspire to um, have more participation, particularly for the climate crisis. Like, you know, a friend of mine's from the Torres um, Strait and her family are defending their shores from climate change, rising sea, with milk crates and coconut husks it's like we talk about this just transition it's like it's you know climate justice it's felt worse from our first nations people so you know they know the problem better than most they can be the solutions creator they should be part of the co-design for the solutions 100 percent um just just on this note i think it's so important for us globally, as you said, you know, we, we, you just reflected in uh, New Zealand's plans to include their um, their Indigenous groups in this conversation. It's so important to, to look at this problem globally and address it in a way that we're including this in our UN framework, including this in our international conventions and we're we're creating conversations around this it's so important because without this without this international recognition of how to include diverse opinions we're not going to go forward and we're not going to create effective solutions to to cater to these problems all right um let's head down talking about um community i wanted to talk about um how the community building experience for climate change has been like and how uh, how do you guys cater for the demands of different stakeholders? I know you've mentioned you've got different founders, different people of colour, different, um, different Indigenous founders, but how do you cater for the community building experience as a whole? I think firstly, um, People who want to join Climate Salad are very mission aligned with um, solving the climate crisis. So that helps. We are a very cohesive, purpose-driven community. We're also founder focused and we always get our members to ask, how can I help others? So um, we are very upfront. Membership of Climate Salad is a privilege um, and not a right. And so we do curate um, our, our members and they know that if they ever need help, they can ask. And, you know, in our Slack channel, if someone asks a question, they'll get several replies within minutes even. Um, if someone needs a lawyer, if someone needs IP advice, if someone needs anything to do with their startup or even just, you know, generally, um, our community is so giving that I think um, it's a very positive space to be in. 
We do have, um, and that's what Olivia was alluding to, we have a membership charter and the first principle is to give first. You need to be contributing value. Um, And you see that, like our members, their first, you know, it's like how can I contribute, you know, rather than what can I get out of this? And, And our members really are true to that. It's also, you know, climate the the climate solution um you know if we were trying to do this 10 years ago it just wouldn't have the same social capital um but it does and it's great to see like people are excited by it um people are excited by it because they're you know um they're passionate about the environment but then they're also people who are really passionate about the opportunity that it represents you know larry fink did say that the next 1000 unicorns are going to be in climate tech so it's exciting it's exciting those that are passionate about the environment, but it's also exciting those that are really wanting that opportunity. Um, and we need we need everyone for this crisis to be solved. Hundred percent. And it, it's interesting you say that because it's it's just so like amazing in in a way to reflect. You know, a couple of years ago, it it wouldn't have the same social capital. We wouldn't have people saying, "Oh, um." How can I contribute? We'd have people, more people saying, oh, what can I get out of this? You know, what sort of commercial value is there? You know, um, do I want to help this person? Do I want to help this startup? Like what what are the other benefits to that? And just to add to that as well, I think like from a much smaller scale, even at Greenfluence, we've seen this firsthand. Um, I think now like going to events, Shree's done an amazing job of this, but the amount of people who are willing to help us and be so gracious with their time is crazy good. And I think that differs, like that sort of makes the climate um, makes the climate tech space like stand out compared to other spaces because people are passionate, because it's a global issue. It's like um, we have this collective outcomes and everyone wants to pay it forward. And I think it's just like so exciting to see. And shout out to the Climate Salad team. They have helped us so much. Olivia, you've literally, uh, I I met her at an event um, and then I met her at the industry networking event and she, she we we just get chatting and she recommended so many people to connect with and and charlotte also we connected on linkedin and then you know we just started talking from there and she recommended all these events as well it's just you guys this this environment is so positive and i i think we're so glad to be a part of it well and Thank you so much because I see like um, I've seen your Green Influence uh, Green Influence podcast and our members being showcased and, you know, whenever there's an opportunity that's, you know, the community is so strong because we have amazing people in it, you know. We are just such a small part of that. Um, you know, we were just talking today. It's like what is Climate Salad and how, you know, oh, we need to generate more content. And I'm like the content we have is fantastic coming from our members their stories are incredible I love sharing them like the impact they're making the roads they're taking uh it's it's really positive to see so you know I'll probably send you 20 more founders to feature in your influence see if you can fit them in but we love to see it so keen for it so keen for it um I thought I'd go into to some current news and get some opinions of uh, what you guys think of uh, the ruling in uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in West Virginia versus EPA. So the ruling stated that the Clean Air Act doesn't give the EPA authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions at power plants by making sweeping changes to entire grids as opposed to requiring 
individual emitters to make reductions. So these routes um, have been, these routes in this case have been pretty complicated um, and it's just over this battle of um, of who has authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Um, and for some context for everyone tuning in, electricity production is the second largest source of carbon emissions behind transport in the US. So from 1960s, Congress passed the Clean Air Act, giving EPA authority to enforce regulations to improve air quality. 2015, the, the Obama administration's um, clean, air, clean Power Plan set guidelines for states around carbon dioxide emissions from power plants and 24 states sued as the plan oversteps authority uh, granted to the EPA by the Clean Air Act. And then in 2019, before the Supreme Court ruled on that issue, the Trump administration replaced the Clean Power Plan with um, affordable clean energy rule, which was less strict. And then a group of states sued again and a federal circuit court blocked this rule and that left the incoming Biden administration with a clean slate to to set rules on greenhouse gas emissions. So this current ruling deprives the EPA of power needed to achieve the Biden administration's plans to make U.S. electricity generation carbon-free by 2035. So with this U.S. ruling being an influential president, what effects do you think we will face globally and as Australians? I think it's a real setback in the global, um, you know, net zero initiative. We know that we need to make drastic cuts in our carbon emissions if we are to meet our Paris Agreement targets globally. Um, And I think it's a real shame that um, the EPA has been limited in this. I think it goes to the the fracturing of America into the states. A lot of their um, legislation is given to the states. Um, and I think in a sense Australia is, is lucky that we have more of a, a, a cohesive federal legislation around this thing. I was just going to say, I mean, I'm looking forward to the outcomes of Tanya, the current environment minister, Tanya Plibersek's um, overhaul of the EPA in Australia. Uh, I was just reading the State of the Environment report, 93% of terrestrial habitat used by threatened species that was cleared between 2000 and 2017 wasn't referred to the federal government for assessment under the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. So even just within our shores, our EPA was not fit for purpose. We didn't have any laws in place to protect our environment, basically, and they have been eroded over time uh, over the last 11 years. So we're seeing sweeping change. Like we're seeing that... the news like this devastates me, but then I think about the conservative governments being wiped out across the globe. Like we see that Biden's now in, you know, we see in Australia, like, you know, I, I live in Queensland now and it was called Greensland. Like we see like an incredibly conservative seat in Brisbane won by a Greens member. Um, you know, we, we see, you know, it will be interesting to see what happens in the UK. So, you know, there is, Climate change, I thought in 2016 federal election, climate change was, it was the climate change election. I was clearly wrong. And maybe to your 
to what we talked about at the start? What was that sort of pinpoint change? And I, thinking back to it, I should have answered, I think it was the, the climate change, the protest, you know, Greta's global movement. I think that was mobilising youth, the people who don't have a voice to vote yet, mobilising our next generation to come out and say, we actually care about this and it matters to us. And now we're voting out, the votes are changing and we can see that. So it's a devastating blow when you see that, you know, six people in the US have that much power. I'm talking about the six ratio of conservative Supreme Court appointees that are there for life. Um, it is devastating, but I can see that I, and I have to have hope in the groundswell of movement, movement of just everybody else on the planet. You know, we we care, there's action being taken, and I look at the business movement, there's more money being invested in climate tech, in the solutions, and I have to say that where government fails us, the business community steps up um, and vice versa. So I'm, I'm hopeful. 100%. Yeah, and I think that's so important because it, there are going to be things that, do do impact us in the long run um, and negatively in in this light but we have to be optimistic we have to be optimistic that there will be solutions to these problems and um, we need to be aware of our own voting rights the the power we have as individuals to to influence government decisions well you look at that i mean greta was one 16 year old you know, you think, you know, the voiceless, the powerless and look at the movement she created. Like she's a hero to my kids. They've got so many books, you know, different Greta stories. So, you know, I, I have hope in the future despite those devastating blows. But um, Olivia can tell you, like, doing the industry report, having a look at our community on a new member call, like that fills me with hope and inspiration for the future. So, you know, the, don't lose heart. There's solutions. They just need our support and we're there to help. Yeah, and I think rulings like this and, um, you know, what Charlotte was mentioning, Australia's State of the Climate, State of the Environment report that was released today after a, a seven-month delay um, because of the previous federal government, um, it is devastating, but it also fills me with the energy to really work triply as hard. And I think it fills a lot of people in our community with that energy as well. We are here to make a difference. We are here to collaborate and to lift each other up and to really support these climate solutions, which are ultimately, if the government, you know, can't legislate, the private sector will do it. And the private sector um, and consumer demand um, will will lift up. And then eventually the government's going to have to respond. Like I see that in energy it's like you know I've got solar panels on my home because I care about the environment but I have friends who just care about reducing their bill that's okay same outcome like we look at Adelaide or South Australia you know 75% of their energy is coming from renewable sources sometimes 100 and you know I'd love to think that that's because they're super into sustainability but it's because they had an energy crisis and they were having blackouts on their grid so they had to change where they were getting their energy source from so we see like out of crisis, you know, adversity, we have solutions, we innovate. So, you know, the the cost of petrol is going to drive the uptake of EVs and that's a good thing. So, you know, the cost of energy is going to drive the uptake of renewables and that's also a good thing. Sometimes it comes, you know, a bit too late. We wouldn't we wanted it 10 years ago, but that's okay. We're getting there. Definitely. I think that's a very good point. Like it takes something really bad for us to just 
get our heads together and be like, we have to change, but it's better late than never. Um, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, and I think you guys mentioned that and, and put it together like extremely well uh, in terms of, you know, the effects that would have. And I think like we're always seeing like the private sector innovates faster than the government. And it's more like private sector has to take the has to take the leap and communities have to take the leap and the government slowly gets on board to respond to the needs of everyone else. And another point I want to make is I think I think communities like ours are so important because now um, I guess people have a voice. They can do stuff online. They can build communities. We have Zoom, things like that. And it's so important that we try and leverage it. Um, I could talk about this for hours, but now it's time for our speed round questions. They're going to be very quick. Are you guys both ready? Let's do it. Let's go. Okay. The first thing, uh, something that we love to hear about at Greenfluence, what is the one piece of advice that you would give to your younger selves? I think for me, it would be, don't worry, follow your passion. Things will click into place if you work really hard. Um, and yeah, follow your passion. I feel like you're still young, Olivia. Um, <laughs> so, so what I would say to my 24 year old self too is, um, yeah, keep on doing this and it's never too late um even if I jumped on the climate bandwagon because I thought it was too big and too hard only a few years ago that's okay all right amazing second question what are two exciting climate tech trends Ooh, great question um I'm personally really excited about um the renewable opportunity for decentralizing our energy grid um, and the democratization of solar power, um, particularly for apartments um, and people like me who are renting. Um, and also the alternative protein space. I think it is absolutely fabulous um, and super cool how we're now, you know, growing actual meat from like big, essentially vats of, of goo. It's, it's so cool. Totally my answer, Olivia. No, but the food and agritech space, I know it, I just find it incredibly exciting because, you know, transport, it's a pretty easy solution. We electrify, we get our energy sources from renewables. The agritech and food space, it is so complex and it, we can't do less of it. We're going to have to feed a growing population of 10 billion people. How do we do that in the most efficient and most sustainable climate friendly way and there's alternative proteins there's better management of soil like we can if we farm correctly we can sequester carbon from the atmosphere so there are there's just not one solution for the agritech and food space there are so many and that is exciting like the amazing things you can do with kelp and seaweed and just even just be more efficient with how you manage your 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 cattle cool now, like, I don't know too much about the ag tech space, but definitely something I want to look into. Um, the last question. So how do people find more, find out more about Climate Salad? What are events coming up? And of course, how do we become members? Firstly, we would love as many climate-oriented people to join as possible. Um, you can go to our website or our LinkedIn. It's just Climate Salad. You can find us um, on Google as well. Um, and our upcoming events, our Queensland Climate Tech Showcase is coming up on August 17 in Brisbane. Um, it's going to be a fabulous event. We're partnering with the Queensland 
Office of the Chief Entrepreneur. Um, so we've got a lot of um, brilliant minds in the room. We're going to have pitches and demos as well as some brilliant um, carbon neutral food um, and great, great networking opportunities there. Yes, that's right. Or just, you know, hit us up on LinkedIn individually too. Um, we're happy to help out. If you can't find the answer on Climate Salad, just ask us. Awesome. Well, hope you'll get a lot more LinkedIn messages after this episode, Charlotte. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you guys already have a lot anyway, but there'll probably be even more. Um, well, wow, that's a wrap. Um, I think this was like an amazing podcast. And I think we gained so much from your expertise, Charlotte and Olivia, in not only like climate tech, but your backgrounds and, and why this space is so exciting and a bit more about like how founders operate what and, and what the bigger challenges are. And I think for Shri, myself, and the rest of the Greenfluence community, it's more like, um, you know, like how can we sort of use um, or, or implement, I guess, some of the things you're doing and create that big community. And I'm really excited for us to keep working together um, and keen to hear your thoughts as well, Shri. 100%. 100%. I echo your thoughts there, Viz. Um, I think it was such a great conversation um, to have between both of you and having that conversation opening that conversation up to include these conversations around Indigenous representation, people of colour representation, and um, and including these voices in creating effective climate solutions. I think I found that really engaging and, and useful. And I hope to be following your journey. And yeah, for everyone tuning in, go, go check out Climate Salad. They're on LinkedIn and connect with Charlotte and Olivia. Thank you for having us. It's a brilliant conversation. No worries. It's been our pleasure. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing more of Greenfluence podcasts and everything else you're going to be up to. What'd you think? One of the things I liked most about this episode was learning about the many different pathways taken to get involved in climate salad and sustainability. It doesn't matter where you come from professionally, as long as you follow and fight for your passions. If you're new to Greenfluence, thanks for joining us, and hopefully you feel inspired to listen to our previous and future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you for listening in again. We really appreciate it and are so excited to grow our Greenfluence community. If you'd like to get in touch and become a Greenfluencer, check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. All the links to our socials are in the show notes. We'd appreciate if you leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And we'll see you next time.